Welcome, guys. Hey, there's more uh, hamburgers and hot dogs out there, so if you want to get one, feel, feel free. Otherwise, you can take them home when we're done. Um, how many of you guys were here last week? Okay. I am not going to do a 28-minute lesson, okay? <laughs> Just, I hate to break the news to you, but, you know, Logan, uh, man, and he was on speed, wasn't he? I was, I was sitting back there, and I was breathing for him, and I, hyper, I hyperventilated twice. Was, uh, now, he did a great job. I gave him an A, but not in breathing, yeah. And he'll be back next week with, uh, you're doing Joseph, right? Abraham, you're going to do Abraham, good, yeah. Yeah, they're both the same, it doesn't matter. Okay, well, I'm going to read our passage for tonight. We're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll be in verse 7. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. Hebrews 11, verse 7. We're going to be doing Noah tonight, someone we're a little bit more familiar with than Enoch. So here's what it says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. And Lord, I pray that as we study the life of Abraham that, or of Noah, that it would, uh, not be academic. It wouldn't be um, reaching back into Sunday school and just studying about somebody who built an ark and who picked the animals two by two. Father, this would be really uh, applicable to our lives and that this story is in the scriptures for a reason. And Father, help us to learn from it what you would have us to learn so that it would change our lives so that we might be like Noah like Enoch, like Abel, men of faith. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So we're real familiar with Noah, right? Noah built an ark. Uh, Noah had to go and get animals and load up the ark. There's at least, I've, I've seen two different individuals who have either built an ark or are in the process of building a life-size a, a life replica of the ark based on the descriptions we're going to look at in just a second. And uh, why anybody would do that, it, it just blows my mind. Um, both of them happen to be millionaires, but they've literally built an ark. Um, and you just sit there and go, why? why? Why would you do that? But the thing is, I think people were saying the same thing in Noah's day. Um, what in the world are you doing? Why are you building an ark? But what I want to do as I prayed, I want this to become much more than just a Sunday school story. I want it to be something that really does jump off the page and come alive in our lives. So Noah is, is a man that uh, some people don't believe in. There are those who think it's just a myth, it's a story, it's a fable. There are other uh, religions, uh, other people groups that have similar flood stories. They just happen to have different names in them. But what I always go back to is, first of all, it's in the Bible, so I, I believe it's true based on that, but I also believe it's true based on what Jesus had to say. So if you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 24, here's what Jesus says about Noah. And, and if Jesus thought Noah was a fable, it certainly doesn't come across in this passage. Uh, chapter 24 of Matthew is, is a passage 
where Jesus is talking about the future. He's talking about the end times. It's a prophetic passage. And in uh, verse 37, listen what he says. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what does this tell us about his perception of Noah? Well, he says he was a man. He says he lived in a certain day. People were eating. People were drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. He entered the ark. He obviously believed there was an ark. He believed Noah got into it. And he also refers to a flood that took the lives of all those people except the ones who got in that ark. So I take this as a true story, a real story. He's a real character. He lived a real life. And so we want to find out more about him. And just like every other character we're going to look at over these weeks, it starts out with by faith. He lived his life by faith. By faith, Abel. We looked at him two weeks ago. By faith, Enoch. We looked at him last week. So by faith, he built. He built an ark. He listened to God by faith. He obeyed God. He did what God told him to do. And through his actions, through his faith, through his efforts, through his building, through construction of the ark, he condemned the world. He basically showed the world what faith looks like, and they didn't participate. They weren't interested in getting in the ark. They weren't interested in following his God. And so as a result, they would die. But he became, as this passage says in Hebrews chapter 11, the heir of righteousness. He, he was seen by God as righteous, just like we saw in Enoch. You know, it's, it's interesting, the three characters we looked at so far, the first guy, Abel, was murdered. He was a righteous man, but he was murdered. His life was taken from him. Enoch was taken without dying. God took him to be with him, and he was glorified. He obviously didn't go to heaven with his mortal body because... Paul makes it really clear we can't exist in heaven with these mortal bodies. So some kind of transaction took place where he went from mortal to immortal and God did it. But he didn't die. And then Noah is going to be a guy who is saved. He's protected. He's kept from dying. He will eventually die, but he's not going to die because of this flood. And all of these guys, all three of them were considered righteous. So what's, what's going on? in the days of Noah. This is a pretty fascinating thing, and you got to flip over to Genesis chapter 6 to get an idea of the context that's going on. And again, we know this story, but I think sometimes we forget the details. We get so hung up on the ark and the flood, and, and if, you've, if you watch the uh, most recent Noah movie, uh, what a disaster. I mean, what, what a financial disaster, what a cinematic disaster. I mean, what a joke. You know, I waited till it came out on, you know, um, the box and watched it there, and I just thought, why did anybody pay to see this thing? But I'm thinking, why did I even waste time watching it? You know, you had the, what, the Nephilim, the rock creatures. You had, I mean, it just, the whole thing was just so poorly done and not based on Scripture. So let's find out what really happened. So chapter 6, starting in verse 5. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that is a really sad statement, isn't it? You know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to hear God say that of us right now, our generation, our culture? Every intention of the thought of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So things have really spiraled out of control. We know with uh, Abel, he was murdered by his brother. We know seven generations later, as uh, we looked at last week, Things had gotten really, really bad, and Enoch had actually prophesied, we see that in the book of Jude, he prophesied about how bad things had gotten, and he spoke to his generation what was going to happen if they didn't return to God. But by now, it's really gotten bad, and God has just basically said, I'm done. Now, I'm amazed that God doesn't do that more often. You know, just look down and go, I'm done. You guys are toast. Um, but it's because of Noah, it's because of the flood. God said he'd never bring a flood again. He'd never wipe out all of mankind in this way again. But it's interesting, it ends in that last verse, verse 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So you've got a really bad situation going on. It is as bad as it can get. It's immoral, it's decadent, it's evil, all their thoughts are evil. So you can imagine the kind of atmosphere this poor guy Noah is, is living in. You know, we think we've got it bad. We think our society is bad. We think we're surrounded with evil, but this is about as bad as it has ever gotten. And it gets even worse because he goes on in verse, verse 11, he says, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. So the entire earth, not just the people, but they had so infected the world that even the earth itself was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world. And that word corruption really means spoiled. It's rotten. It's rotten to the core. And it's really referring to the moral corruption going on. We don't know exactly what was going on in the world. You know, there had to be something going on with the animals. It, it just, everything was screwed up because of the sinfulness of men. And so he goes on and says, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. So the sinfulness of men had polluted the entire creation. So again, we're seven, eight generations away. We've moved from the fall and from that, that perfect picture in the garden where they lived in perfect community with God, perfect fellowship with God. The fall took place, and now, seven, eight generations later, it spiraled down out of control, and God says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to do them all in. But he says, again, in verse 8, Genesis chapter 6, but Noah found favor with the Lord. He's like a bright spot in the midst of all that darkness. And it makes me think, am, am I a bright spot in the darkness in which I live? You know, am I a light in the darkness? Do I shine? Do people see me? Do they see you? Do they look at us and go, man, there's something different about you? I guarantee they looked at Noah and saw him as someone different. He stood out. He was a righteous man. He was a godly man. 
And if, as a matter of fact, in verse 9 of Genesis 6, it says, Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at that time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So the very same thing that was said of Enoch, Enoch walked with God, and um, Logan unpacked this last week, that Hebrew word is halak, and it literally means to either walk, physically walk, take steps, but it figuratively means to live your life. And so, as Logan said, it's really both things. He, he literally walked around on the planet amongst all those people, amongst the immorality, the decadence, but he also lived his life righteously in a godly way, just like Enoch had done. And you have to ask yourself, what kept him going? How did he keep living that life in the midst of all that was around him when all he really had was his own family? He had his sons, his daughter-in-laws, his wife, but he didn't have a faith community. And Logan pointed out that neither did Enoch. He didn't have a church family. He didn't have a small group. He, it was just him. And now we have the same problem with Noah, and yet he seems to be able to walk with God and live in keeping with God. He's a righteous man. He had this ongoing relationship with God in, in spite of all that was going on around him. He walked with him. He talked with him. He believed God existed. And we know in uh, verse 6 of chapter 11, it says that you can't please God except by faith and believing that he exists and that he's the rewarder of those who seek after him. I think clearly Noah was a man who believed God existed and he walked with him. He spent time with him. He listened to him. And the story points that out and makes it very clear that he was a man who knew God, listened to God, and obeyed God. And, and again, last week, Logan brought out that it's the same idea about Abraham. Genesis tells us that Abraham was told by God when he was like 94 years old, God came to him. And I want you to get that through your head. However old you are, think about being 94 years old, God coming to you, speaking to you and saying, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. I know what goes through my mind. Really? You know, 94? My mom's 95. She has a hard time just walking, let alone walking and being blameless. He tells Abraham, I want you to live your life. Again, it's that Hebrew word halak. I want you to live your life in my presence as if I'm watching you every step of the way. Why? Because he is. Live it with the recognition that I'm with you and I care about everything that you do. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, when he says be blameless, that word is uh, tamim, and it's, it's a word that doesn't mean perfection. We read it and we think perfection. Walk before me and be blameless, without blame, without sin, perfect. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, I want you to walk before me holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, completely. Every area of your life exposed to me because guess what? I see every area of your life. One of the incredible things about God, you may not know this, and you may not like this, and you may even want to reject this, but God knows everything you're thinking before you thunk it. He knows your thoughts before they even form in your own brain. He knows everything about you. And what's so silly about our mindset is we think we can hide things from God. 
well, I won't tell him. I'm not going to confess that to God because I don't want him to know. What are you, an idiot? He knows. He sees. He's with you. You walk with him whether you realize it or not. You just don't walk according to his will. And so when he says, walk before me, Abraham, and be blameless, live wholly in front of me your whole life. Don't compartmentalize. Don't hold anything back. Live with the idea that I am watching you and I care about everything that you do. It's interesting, uh, uh, Tuesday night, Logan uh, taught the same lesson to the guys out on the West Campus, and I sat at one of the tables and went through the discussion time with the guys, and we were talking about that whole idea of living your life before God as if He sees you, and so one of the questions had to do with, you know, what do you... Um, what do you have in your life that you kind of hold back from God, that you don't let him have? And we, we all sat there for a while kind of thinking about it, and I, I finally I said, you know, for me it's, it's, it's kind of silly, but it's, um, it's little purchases. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really extravagant. I don't buy big things. I don't buy expensive things. And my wife's kind of the same way, but I will, I will buy little things that make me feel good. And, and what hit me is, I never ask God about those little things. I never include him in, in that decision. I just, I just get it. I'll go to the store, I'll see something, I'd like that, it's not that expensive, I justify it, I buy it. But I don't say, God, what would you have me do? And it really convicted me. Because that, whether I want to admit it or not, as we talked about last week, that is basically living your life without God. I don't need your input. I don't need your permission. I'm just going to do it. Now, some of us, those purchases are bigger. It could be a car. It could be a house. It could be new golf clubs. It could be vacation. It could be you name it. We think we can live and make decisions without God, but that basically is living godlessly without God. But Noah, it says, was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. He was whole. Every year of his life was open up to God. And he was the only blameless man in his entire community. That's pretty sad, isn't it? We have it bad, but we don't have it that bad. I mean, you just look around the room. We've got lots of guys who love the Lord, who are here, who study His Word, who are trying their best to, to live and grow in Christ's likeness. Noah had nobody except his family. And so what does he tell him? Well, in Genesis 7-1, he basically tells him the good news, you're going to build an ark. And then you're going to get in it. Now, the amazing thing about Noah and the ark that I've always thought about is that he built an ark. Now, if God came to me and told me to build an ark that's the length of a football field and fill it with animals, I would think I ate something really bad for dinner or, or I've got the wrong connection or I'm hearing from demons. I, you know, God, what are you thinking? That's always been amazing to me that you know, he, he was told to do that and he did it. But we forget that there's the second part when he finally finished it God said, now I want you to go get in it. I want you to occupy it. 
and I want you to shut the door behind you. In verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are a righteous before me in this generation. He's righteous. He's holy. But he's obedient. He's faithful. Remember, by faith, he did these things. And God gives him kind of an early warning system. You know, we have the sirens that go off when we've got a tornado in the area. Well, God kind of sets off the siren for him in verse 7. And we read it just a few minutes ago. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. So God tells him what's going to happen. He tells him there's something coming and you need to get ready for it. And I'm giving you fair warning. You know, there are some who believe that it took Noah as long as a hundred years to build the ark. And they base that on his age when he, when he had kids and when he finally got in the ark. He was 600 years old when he finally got in the ark. He had his first kid when he was 500 years old. Remember, they were living longer back then. He could have spent as long as a hundred years building that ark. Man, talk about a beatdown. You know, every day, honey, where are you going? Uh, going to go back in the backyard and work on the ark for a hundred years. But he did it. Every day he built the ark. He worked on it. And because God had warned him of something to come. come. So look over again in Genesis 6, verse 13. And again, we're going to look at the context. What's going on here? Remember, the earth is corrupt. He's the only righteous man. He's blameless before God in the sense that he lives his entire life in, in the eyes of God. Doesn't mean he's perfect. Doesn't mean he never sinned. But he tells him in verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through, through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Then he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make yourself, then he says, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how are you to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof of the ark and finish it. To, one, to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second. I'm not even going to go all through it. He gives them basically the blueprint to build the ark. Now, at this point, I would have said, okay, Lord, there's about eight people in my family. This is overkill. You know, I don't need this big a boat, whatever a boat is. Because, again, you got to keep in mind, He's probably never seen a boat before because he's at least 100 miles from the nearest body of water. Okay, and there are many theologians who believe he's never seen rain before because there's a belief that in the early days before the flood, there was a canopy around the earth. It was a water canopy. And it was that canopy that opened up and basically flooded the earth because there's no way, according to most scientific research, that that much water could have rained on the earth, completely covering the entire earth and every mountain that existed to well above the tip of the mountain by just rain. So there was this canopy of water, and it's that canopy of water that acted as kind of a protection against the rays of the sun and which led to the longer lifespan of the people of that day and age. Is that true? I have no idea. We can ask no one when we get to heaven, or we may ask God. But basically, 
He's never really seen, he's never seen a flood. He's probably never seen a boat, and yet God's giving him directions how to build one. And then in verse 17, he says, I'm going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now keep in mind, what would you have done at this point? You would have argued with God. You would have said, no, okay, there's got to be a better way. Have you considered, what if I built a dinghy instead? What if I built a sailboat? What if I, I don't even know what a flood is. How do I know it's going to really come? See, we would have rationalized, we would have argued, we would have debated with God, but that's not what happens with this guy. He didn't say, are you kidding? Have you lost your mind? He was being asked by God to build something he'd never seen before in preparation for a major cataclysmic worldwide event that had never happened before. And, and I panic when God asks me to share my faith with someone. But this is major stuff. He's not building a deck in the backyard, right? God didn't say, you know, hey, build your shanty, a shed in the backyard, make sure it's waterproof, and you'll be okay. No, he's got to build a massive boat. He's got to cut the wood. He's got to saw the wood. He's got to shape the wood. He's got to construct this thing. And I can see where it probably did take him 50, 60, 70 years to do this. Not counting getting all the animals. So what happens? We know in verse 1 of Hebrews, what does it say? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's kind of our working description of faith. What's that got to do with Noah? What was he hoping for? What was he hoping for? What did he have an assurance about and was hoping for? Well, if you, if you read the passages in Genesis, what he's hoping for is this boat's going to float and I'm going to get saved. This is all going to work. He's having to hope for something he has no idea about. It's never happened before. See, I don't have any problem trusting God for things I've seen him do before. Where I struggle is trusting God for things I've never seen him do before. And yet here he's being asked to build this boat. Well, what about the issue of the conviction of things not seen? What had he not seen? What had Noah not seen and yet had to have a conviction about it? That it was going to rain, which he probably had never seen before. That it was going to result in a flood. And it was going to bring worldwide destruction. So if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, he lives out that definition, that description. He had faith because he had assurance in things that he was hoping for. Why else would he have built that boat? <coughs> Why did he have a conviction of things he couldn't even see that it's going to happen? I've never seen a flood, but you know what? He said it's coming. I'm going to get ready for it. <coughs> he, he lives out 11.1. And he has this incredible response of faith. Look at verse 22 of chapter 6 of Genesis. You see this three times in this passage. <coughs> it said, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. 
He didn't argue. He didn't express doubt, at least it's not recorded in the passage. He didn't question God's wisdom, which is what I do. He took God at his word, he trusted him, and then he acted. He obeyed him. It says he had reverent fear. He had awe for God, respect for God, and it fleshed itself out in his obedience. He was being asked to do the impossible and the implausible. Build this massive boat. Never had, you know, there's no, there's no way of knowing that he had even any kind of do-it-yourself skills. And yet God equipped him. He had to do the overwhelming and accomplish the insurmountable. What a, what a huge project to, to pull off. And I, and I would think that every day he went out there, he looked at it and went, good grief. I've got nowhere. I've been working on this thing for 20 years. And it's, it's nowhere. It's just the frame. But he kept working. He kept doing what God had called him to do faithfully and and really all on blind faith right because he had no guarantees other than what the word of God God told me I'm going to do it he had an assurance of what he was hoping for that his family would be saved that's what motivated him he had a conviction of things unseen that a flood was going to come and that boat was going to float it was going to work, and he would be saved. You know, what jumps out at me in this passage is that he believed and he built. See, faith to me, as I said two weeks ago, faith to me is a nebulous word. It's a word that we, we use very flippantly, and we say, yeah, I have faith. I have faith in God. I trust God. And yet, for Noah, his faith, his belief was very tangible. It, it was very real. It was, you could literally touch it, right? How? The ark. It, it was something that he could sink his teeth into, that he could literally get into. And his faith was proven by his obedience. And that's where I think you and I struggle with when it comes to faith is that we believe God, but we don't obey God. So therefore, we never really prove that we have faith. We don't step out in faith. We doubt, we fear, we, we rationalize, we justify why we don't obey. But over and over in chapter 6 and then in chapter 7, it says Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. He just kept doing what God said to do, even though he'd never seen it before. He had no way of knowing other than God's word that it was going to happen. He just obeyed. And you have to ask, ask the question, because this jumps out at me in this passage, what saved Noah in the end? Was it the ark? Was it his craftsmanship? Was it his architectural capabilities? What saved it? Was it his faith? We've talked about this in past lessons before, but you got to be careful that you don't say he was saved by his faith because he was saved by God. God's the one that warned him. God's the one that gave him the instructions for the boat. God's the one that told him to build the boat. But here's the deal. It took belief in the plan of God for him to be saved. Yes, he got in the boat. Yes, the boat technically saved him because it protected he and his family. But it was really 
his faith in God and the word of God. God was the object of the faith. It was God who saved him, not the ark. But we do know this. If he hadn't built the ark, what would have happened? He'd have died. His family would have died. His wife would have died. His boys would have died. His daughter-in-laws would have died. But he believed. See, God provided the instruction, but he had to provide the construction. And it makes me think about my life, how God is always giving me things that he asks me to do, tells me to do through his word, encourages me to do, but I got to do them. And that's where faith comes in. Faith has to be tangible. Faith has to be lived out. It has to be something that becomes seen. Because again, verse 6, if you don't have faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And see, it's not just this mental assent that God exists and I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but it's a faith that lives itself out in real life in real tangible ways. And what I want you to wrestle with as we move forward and as you go into your discussion time in just a few minutes, I want you to wrestle with the idea of what has God asked you to do in the past that you can look back and say, I did it, and that's proof. I can point to it, I can see it, it's real, and others can see it. Your wife can see it, your kids can see it. And the sad reality is, for most of us in this room, we don't have those things, those tangible, real things we can point to and say, I did that on faith. And you know what hit me as I studied this passage and thought about it? Do you, do you have any idea how long that ark lasted? I don't either. But I think it probably lasted a long time. And I think it sat on top of Mount Ararat, and it sat there and sat there and sat there and was a daily reminder of what? His faith. That it took me a hundred years, but you know what? I'm so glad I did it. And God was so faithful and that boat floated and it saved our lives and we are still here and my God is faithful and that boat is a constant reminder. I don't know how long it lasted, but I think he probably went back to it on numerous occasions and reminded himself that faith in God has to be tangible. It's got to be real. You got to be able to touch it, look at it, see it. And we know that he had enduring faith because, again, it, it, it had to take him years. And what we know is he probably got ridiculed beyond belief. You know, I have the gift of sarcasm, and I think he probably had plenty of friends in his neighborhood who had the gift of sarcasm, too, saying, you are the biggest fool in the world. What in the world are you building? You've been doing this for 100 years. Are you, have you lost your mind? What do you call this thing? Boat? What's a boat? Flood? No, what's a flood? Rain. We've never seen rain. What are you talking about? And what did he do? He just kept building and he kept believing. He kept building and he kept believing. And he had faith that was touchable and tangible. Concrete form, the ark. And if you hear anything else tonight, I want you to hear that. That you've got to have faith that is so real and tangible that you can sink your teeth into. Yeah, what do you have to show for your faith? I, I, love, I love it. If I, if I ask you, do you have faith in Christ? Oh, yeah, I have faith in Christ. Well, that's great. 
show me your faith. That's what James said. You tell me you have faith? Great. Show it to me. I'll show you my faith by what? By my works. See, he could take his kids, his boys, even though they were adults and married, he could still take them to that ark sitting up on Mount Ararat and say, you know what faith looks like, boys? That's faith. You remember how long I worked on that thing? That's faith. And it points to my God. But I had to do the work. I still have the blisters. I still got the broken fingers from working on that ark. But I kept building and I never gave up. And I put my faith in God and it's tangible. James 2.18, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I'm not telling you that you need faith to get saved, but I am telling you that your saving faith should result in works. It should result in things that people can see that you can look at and go, you know what? I believe my God. I stepped out in faith. I did this thing and he came through. I told Logan, we were talking the other night, in the car just talking about what, what does that look like in our life? And I said, well, for me, it's when God called me to leave advertising and go into ministry. It scared the bejeebers out of me. And the main thing I was scared about is that how in the world am I going to live with a family of six kids on what I know pastors get paid? When I know I can make a whole lot more money in advertising. And so I put it off and I put it off and I put it off because I did not have faith that God would supply my needs. And so I came up with this grand plan that I was going to get out of debt, I was going to pay off our house, and I was going to work in advertising until I could get all my debt paid off, and then I'd go into ministry. God had a different plan. In one week, I lost every account that I had. And it was like God was up in heaven with a tap going, oh, you want to wait? Watch this. And I had no business. And so the next day, I'm literally sitting in an office here at the church going, what have I done? But it's been 10 years ago, and I look back and I go, man, what? I'm so glad I did what he called me to do. Logan left Midland and came to seminary, not knowing exactly what that was going to be like, not knowing where he was going to live, where he was going to work, how he's going to provide for he and his wife, and yet here he is. And he's almost done with seminary. And he can look at that and he can go, that is faith. I, can, I stepped out in faith not knowing what was going to happen and God provided. So what's God asked you to do that you haven't done? What's he asking you to do right now that you're kind of waffling on? Step out in faith. Just do it. Trust him. What can the world look at in your life and say, man... That was an act of faith. Your God's pretty amazing. That's what God wants to do. That's what he wants to do in my life. That's what he wants to do in your life. And, and as we wrap this thing up, what I want you to think about is, you, if you're in Christ, you're saved, right? But you're not completely saved. I know that sounds heretical, but it just means that you're not in heaven yet. You're not glorified yet. You're not with Enoch right now. You still got this earthly body. You're still waiting here. So you're saved, but you still have to be glorified. So in a sense, 
we're still waiting on some things to happen, right? We're still trusting God that it is going to happen, that He is going to send His Son back, that we are going to be glorified, and that our salvation will be complete. So we're having to trust Him, and we're setting our sights on that. Even though we can't see heaven, we don't know what it's going to look like, we don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. And so in the meantime, here's what we're doing, or should be doing. We're building on the foundation that has been established in our lives through our faith in Jesus Christ. See, that's just the beginning. Whenever you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that was the beginning of your faith journey, your faith walk. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, just listen to this. It says, according to the grace God, of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. So you're He shared the gospel, people came to faith, and now they're building on that foundation of faith in their own lives. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, you don't have to be a genius to figure out those are different kinds of works, right? Expensive, cheap, lasting, not lasting, Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is speaking of that judgment coming for you and I as believers. It's the Bema Seat of Christ where we will put before God and His Son everything we've done since becoming believers. Everything we've built on the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know if it's a literal fire, but those works will be set fire to. And whatever is left, we'll receive a reward for. What do you think is going to be left? The only thing that's going to be left is anything done through you by God because of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you get no credit for it. But you get the reward. And you also get to spend eternity with Him. There's no risk of losing your salvation here. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but though he himself will be saved. So the issue is, what are you busy building right now? You've been saved. You place your faith in Christ. That's your foundation. What are you building on that foundation? Is it your career? Is it your economics, your finances? Is it your self-worth? Is it your accomplishments? What are you building? What are you constructing? And is God getting the glory for that, or are you getting the glory? When people look at your life, do they go, man, you've got a great God? Or do they look at you and go, man, you're a great guy? You know, I went to a funeral this last year. It was really sad. One of the saddest funerals I've ever been to. Very successful man. Very wealthy. And everybody who got up and, and eulogized the guy all talked about his business accomplishments. Not one person, including his kids, said anything about his faith. Man, I do not want that to be my story at my funeral. 
I want to be a man who is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And I want it to be lasting. I want it to be what he wants me to build. See, if Noah had built anything other than the ark, he would have died. He would have lost the salvation. I'm not telling you you're going to lose your salvation, but I'm telling you that you will lose the joy, the blessings, the benefits of your foundational faith in Christ if you don't build what he wants you to build. What he's looking for, not what you're looking for. And so I'm going to leave you with these four little thoughts. <coughs> if you want to write them down, you can, or you can come get them from me later. But these hit me this week, and they kind of jumped out at me. Grace, which we all love. I love grace. <coughs> it's unmerited. I don't earn it. It's the fruit of God's grace. Faith, grace is the fruit of God's love, I mean. Faith is the fruit of God's love. God loved me, loved you so much that he sent his son to die in my place and in your place. Grace, the grace of God is what emanates from his love that he would provide a way for you to be saved in spite of you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But let's take it the next step. Faith is the fruit of grace. So that grace that we've received, that unmerited favor, should produce in us faith. Because look what he's done for me. And I want to trust him because of what he's done for me. I want to place my faith in him. I want to live for him. I want to put everything in him because of what he's done for me. Let's take that a step further. Works are the fruit of faith. How should your faith express itself in works? Doing what God has called you to do, told you to do, you do it, just like Noah did. And this one's going to probably throw you for a loop, and it may, be, may get me fired, depending on how it's interpreted. God's approval is the fruit of works. I thought it was based on faith. It is. But faith without works is what? Dead. It's got to express itself. God's approval is the fruit of works. I love the, the parable he tells in Matthew chapter 25 where he has the servants and a couple of them have been faithful. One of them has been a sluggard. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What are you building on the foundation that he's given you? You've been given so much. You've been given the love of God, the, the grace of God. You've been given the life of Christ in your place. You've been given righteousness you didn't deserve. You've got a place reserved for you in heaven. What are you building on that? And will it last? Will it last? So here's your first question. Noah built a boat. It was a tangible expression of his faith in God. What do you have in your life that you can point to as a visible, tangible expression of your faith in God? And what can your lost friends and coworkers point to as a visible evidence of your faith? It may be hard for you to come up with something. Don't despair because you're not dead yet. You got time. 
but it does mean you're going to have to change your priorities. Let me pray for you, and then you guys have your discussion. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for their patience. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the life of Noah, that he was a man who lived by faith, who was blameless, not because he was perfect, but because he took his life, every area of his life, and he lived it right in front of you every day, knowing you were watching. And I pray that would be true of every man in this room, that there would be no hidden areas, no places where we try to hide from you, no places that we try to keep to ourselves, that, Father, we would be men who walk before you blamelessly, holy. And, Father, I pray that you would show us how to build on the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ so that we, when we stand before you and your Son, we will have something left over from the things that we have built, that it doesn't all go up in smoke. But Father, we know it's only possible through you, your grace, your power, your spirit, and because of your son. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun.